Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a Blendjet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes that come out smooth, creamy, and delicious in just 20 seconds. So go to blendjet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout to get 12% off your order. That's promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order at checkout. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language, but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica and tell her Ian sent you. Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our fifth look at the West Memphis Three. Before we get into the case, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow the show on social media, you can just search for Deathcast, Deathcast Pod. Deathcast official. You can find me on most social media websites under any one of those monikers. If you'd like to help support the show, there's a couple ways that you can do that. First and foremost, go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. You can also share the show on social media. It helps it out greatly. Two other ways you can help. One is to go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the deathcast and make a donation to the show. No amount is too large and obviously no amount is too small. The third way that you can support the show is to go to tinyurl.com backslash dcastpatreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can help support this show. And I would like to shout out our lone Patreon member channel. I know you enjoy what I do, and I greatly appreciate your support of this show. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. We left off last week. We had been discussing various pieces of evidence that were found out at the crime scene, such as the knots used top the boys, the hairs, various fibers. Some commentators had pointed to the fact that a nearby tree to where the bodies were discovered had the initials ME carved into it, and these self-same commentators have stated that Damien Eccles was known around town as Michael Eccles and had in fact been going to have his name changed when he was in Oregon to Michael Damien Wayne Eccles. And while that is an interesting coincidence, we really don't have any way to verify whether or not this was in fact Damien Eccles doing. So that's going to fall into the category of it may or may not have meaning to this case. Now, in the days after the bodies of Michael, Christopher, and Stevie being discovered, this case was all over the news in the area. And because of this, the police put a lot of resources into trying to track down 
who it was that may have been responsible for committing these heinous crimes. That is something that we need to look at before we get on to the witness statements of people who came forward about the West Memphis Three, because the police did not just immediately zone in on Damien, Jason, and Jesse. By all indications, there were at least 70 other individuals that the West Memphis Police Department looked into in the course of their investigation. So we can, again, take that idea that these three young men were targeted by police and throw it out the window because there were other suspects, one of which was a transient who was seen on a bicycle, another of whom was two teenagers known to have been hitchhiking out near Osceola. And the police did their best to try and track down each one of these individuals, questioning them and dismissing them in turn either because they passed polygraph test, could not be placed in the area, or had a strong enough alibi that the police were able to reasonably assume that this individual did not do it. There are a couple, though, that we do need to look at because they have taken on such an important part in the lore of the West Memphis Three case. The most famous of whom is an individual known as Mr. Bo Jangles. In a nutshell, a black man stumbled into a local Bojangles restaurant. It was noted that he was out of sorts, had a cast on one arm, and went into the female bathroom. Upon exiting, it was noted that there was blood and excrement all over the bathroom, and police were called. They did not do their due diligence, unfortunately. If I remember correctly... The officer that was dispatched simply pulled up to the window to talk to those inside. The next day they did return and got a blood sample, but unfortunately this piece of evidence was lost somewhere along the way. And supporters of the West Memphis Three have jumped on this mysterious bleeding man as the possible real culprit. There is very little evidence to indicate this, and you have to take into account how common this type of thing is in a place like West Memphis, where you get intoxicated individuals or those who are on drugs going into an area making a nuisance and then leaving before the police arrive. Okay, West Memphis is not this idyllic cityscape with white picket fences and all that type of thing. West Memphis is mostly middle to lower income families. There is a lot of drug usage in the area, has a fairly high crime rate. It is across the river from Memphis, Tennessee, which also draws in you know, the undesirables from that city. It is also intersected by major highways and is a, a hub for truck drivers. So this type of thing really isn't out of the ordinary. 
But what is out of the ordinary is three young boys going missing and being found dead the next day. So it's understandable why some people might want to know more about this individual because if you're looking at it from the outside and don't know anything about the case, it does seem suspicious that a man who is bleeding shows up in a bathroom at a chicken restaurant on the night these three boys vanished. There is also another suspect known as the Tattooed Man who was first mentioned on May 8th by Ken Gover from Little Rock who informed police that he had seen a white male in his mid-twenties while traveling eastbound on Interstate 40 just outside of Little Rock. Apparently, this man was angry because the individual he was riding with prior had stolen gasoline and was drinking and high on drugs. This individual was described as having a tattoo of a devil on his left forearm, along with a tattoo of a bloody bone on his right inside forearm. According to Gover, at roughly 3.30 p.m., this individual asked to be dropped off at a convenience store in West Memphis on the south side of Interstate 40. Gover made it a point to let the police know that this individual specifically named this convenience store and this location as the area that he would like to be let off at. Gover also informed police that, that the hitchhiker was heading to Knoxville and that Gover had offered to take him further along his route, but the man had insisted on being dropped off. Gover also insisted that the man was very, very angry, while noting that he seemed to be much more familiar with Little Rock and West Memphis than your typical transient would be. Police also looked into a mythical white van, along with numerous other leads that needed to be tracked down. One that is often mentioned is the two young men who left West Memphis. Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, who left shortly after the murders had taken place and went to California. Many people have pointed to this as possibly an indication that they were involved. Further linking the two men is the fact that Morgan had driven an ice cream van in the neighborhood and was said to have known all three of the boys. It is interesting to note, though, that Morgan did show up to police headquarters in Oceanside, California, after learning that he was wanted and for questioning in the murder of these three boys. He was given a polygraph examination, which it has been said that he failed. Morgan was then interrogated. And this next bit of information, I believe, has been interpolated into the story of Jesse Miss Kelly. Apparently, Morgan was interrogated for upwards of 17 hours before angrily confessing out of exasperation because the police would not believe that he was involved with the killings. During his interrogation, when he quote-unquote confessed, Morgan suggested maybe he had blacked out, and that is why he had no recollection of actually perpetrating the killings. Morgan was eventually ruled out as a suspect. On May 9th, police received a tip about an individual from 
West Memphis by the name of Richard Cummings. Police confiscated three knives from him because he was considered a possible suspect. There were stories out there that he had been seen drilling holes into the walls of a neighbor's apartment over at the Mayfair apartment building. And police eventually brought Cummings in on the 10th of May. The 23-year-old informed police that on the night of the 5th, he was home until about 10 p.m. when his mother came and picked him up and brought him to his job at the Iron Skillet. Police investigated other leads involving Cummings, including the murder-rape of a 12-year-old boy near Ithaca, New York, in 1990 because it was not far from Cummings' hometown. On May 28th, Vicki Hutchinson went to the West Memphis Police Department. Now, while some of what she has said was indeed verified by other individuals, some of what she has said has not been able to be verified by anybody. And you need to keep that in mind as we go over the various statements of Vicki Hutchinson. You also need to keep in mind that Hutchinson was bullied by supporters of the West Memphis Three into recanting her statements, and this was easy enough to do, as, if I'm not mistaken, Miss Hutchinson did have a history of drug usage, which made her a very easy target and people-pleaser. According to her statements, Vicky's son... Aaron was best friends with these three boys and that she had picked him up on May 5th from school. And according to her, that she was approached while she sat in her car by Michael Moore and Christopher Byers, who informed her that there was a Cub Scout meeting that night and it was very important that Aaron go. She would not let them. Again, she was asked if Aaron could go to their house. Vicky would not allow her son to go with them because she had errands to do and it seems as though they had a fairly normal evening the next day vicky brought her son to school roughly 10 minutes late around 8 30 and then went home to prepare for an interview she turned on the television and that was when she had learned about the three boys going missing after learning this vicky went back to the school before going to the Moore household to see what was going on. And this is where things get kind of confusing because she says that she left Aaron at school, then she says that Dana Moore was able to get him out of school so that they could talk to Aaron to try and figure out where the boys may have gone. Remember, this is very early in the morning of the 6th, and the bodies have not yet been discovered. Aaron told them that there was a clubhouse down in Robin Hood Hills that the boys liked to play out. Vicky stated that she knew where this clubhouse was. According to her, this clubhouse was really just some boards that the boys had thrown together that reminded her of a deer stand. When Vicky went to where the clubhouse was, she found that the West Memphis police had cornered off the entire area and she was unable to enter. So Vicky began her own investigation. I know this seems kind of out there. She's kind of out there to begin with. She sends her son, Aaron, to go live with her sister and begins this investigation. 
talking with individuals such as Jesse Miss Kelly, who lives down the street from her. When I read Vicky's statements, it almost comes across as though she may have had a sexual relationship with Miss Kelly. There's no evidence anywhere to suggest that this was in fact true. But we do know that Vicki Hutchinson was the one that bought Jesse the bottle of Evan Williams whiskey on the night that the murders took place. So she goes and starts talking with Jesse over the course of a few days, trying to really just pump him for information because she figures, hey, you know, Jesse might know something about what happened. During the course of all this, Jesse points Damien Eccles out to Vicky, and she does tell the police that she thought maybe there was some devil-worshipping aspect to the crimes. For some reason, she decided that she was going to convince Jesse to hook her up with Damien Eccles. So apparently Damien would just show up at the house and they would talk about various things. Vicky did admit during these interviews that she had been in contact with police during this time and that they had been giving her books on witchcraft in order to talk with Damien Eccles. Damien eventually invites her to a SBAT. And according to her, eventually she, Eccles, and Miss Kelly left the area to go to one of these SBATs in Turrell. Arkansas. They go out into the middle of the woods where she says there was probably about 10 individuals present. She said these individuals had painted faces along with parts of their bodies. And eventually the individuals there strip naked. And eventually she decides that she wants to leave and she and Eccles leave, leaving Miss Kelly there. And at least according to Vicky, she ends up being informed by Damien that they're going to have to stop seeing each other because there are rumors going around town about the two of them, given the fact that he's 18 years old and she is quite a bit older than him. And she continues to go on about various strange incidents that have happened since then. As early as the 10th of May, Aaron Hutchinson had spoken to police to inform them that he had known the boys. His is the most troubling of all of the statements that you are likely to come across in the West Memphis 3 case because he starts out talking like a normal child and by the time everything is said and done, he has spun such a fantastical story that it is obvious to anybody looking at it that there's no way the things that he is saying could be true. So the first statement Aaron gives is just very brief that he knew the boys. Then on May 27th, he goes back and talks to the police again. This time he tells them about the clubhouse. But he also brings up the fact that the three of them, himself, Christopher, and Michael Moore, would oftentimes see a group of men engaging in homosexual acts down in the Robin Hood Hills area. On its face, this is a very, very strange statement, claiming eventually that they had seen this happen on at least five occasions and that they had never seen any of these men who numbered in five 
except for at one point having seen one of them in the Flash market, which I assume was some kind of small convenience store or grocery shop. He goes on to give numerous other statements after this, each one becoming less and less grounded in reality than the last, until eventually the police are left to realize that this kid is just spinning tales, whether this is things his mother is telling him or things that he is making up on his own because he is enjoying the attention that he is getting from the police. So they stop speaking with him in January of 1994. Now we're going to move to Narlene Hollinsworth, who is another witness gave a statement on the 10th, and this is a very important statement. She goes and picks up L.G. Hollingsworth, who, if I'm remembering correctly, she had married his father or his uncle or someone along those lines. Anyways, it's a very strange relationship. So Narlene had spent the day with LG taking him to look at a job and eventually late in the afternoon she drove him home. On the way back to her home, Narlene stated that she saw the three boys as they were riding around on their bicycles over near Weaver Elementary School and she nearly ran one of them over as he came flying out in front of her car. She said that she honked her horn at the child and informed him that he needed to get out of the street before somebody hit him. So Narlene goes home and has something to eat, and later that night she has to go out and pick up Dixie Hollingsworth, who works at the local laundromat. This is around 10 o'clock that Darlene has to go pick up Dixie. This laundromat is located on Ingram Street next to the Flash Market, which is just down the road from the service access road that leads into Robin Hood Hills. So Narlene takes her husband and her children to go with her to go pick up Dixie. According to Narlene, this was about 20 minutes to 10. They were over near the Love's gas station, which is the truck stop where John Mark Byers had said that he had stopped to honk and look for the boys. Now I'm going to quote directly from the transcripts of her statement from this point on. Narlene, okay, I got ready to go and my husband went with me and my children were too and on our way coming down like you're going to Love's, I saw Dominic and Damien coming down the street. Officer Dabs, what time was this? Narlene, this was exactly 20 minutes till 10 exactly because we had our watches, and we knew what time it was. Okay, they had dark clothing on, and they were all not cleaned. Dabs, you said at one time that they were muddy all over. Narlene, they did have dirt on them, yes, they did now. Hester, now, which way were they walking? Narlene, they were coming back towards Lakeshore, this way. Dabs, okay, they were heading back uh, west, as you were going east on the service road. Narlene, right. Dabs, they were walking west, and you said they they were by a yellow marker. Narlene, they were, it was a yellow uh, sign thing up. Some stick standing up, and then they were just before, or that, got to there, where they was. Okay, as we were driving, she pointed the stick to us, and it's right there on the off-ramp where 
street as you go east down the interstate, the off-ramp off to the south service road where the yellow sticker marker was, Hester. And they would have been on the south side, Dabs. And they were on the south side of the south service road headed west against traffic. Okay. Narlene, okay. From then I don't know. Dabs, who all was with you when you saw these? Narlene, Tabitha Hollingsworth, Ricky Hollingsworth, and I believe Mary Hollingsworth and little Ricky Hollingsworth were in the car too. I think all of us was in that car together that night. Hester, are these all your children? Narlene, they sure is my whole family. Dabs, your husband and your children? Narlene, right. Dabs, okay. Narlene and I. Dabs, didn't you say that you... You also saw, uh, saw, had your, were you driving? Narlene, uh, yeah. Dabs, and you said that you turned your bright lights on when you saw them so that you could de definitely see them? Narlene, so that I could get a good look at them to see who they were. Yes, I did, and I said, that's Dominic and Damien. No, don't look like it is, and I got a good close look and said, it sure is. Hester. All right, these people were known to you, is that correct? Narlene, yes, ma'am. Hester, these people were known to you, Dominic and Damien? Narlene, yes, I see them all the time. Hester, how long have you known them? Narlene, well, I don't really know Damien, because I don't go around him from all the bad things I had heard about him, but, but therefore I don't let my children go around him and Dominic. I've known her all my life because I used to hold her up on my hip when she was six-month-old baby. Dabs, you did advise that she lives behind trailer there? Narlene, yes, she does. Dabs, at this time, Narlene, she lives in my sister's trailer, Pamela Hollingsworth. Dabs, okay. What did you do then right after you saw them? Narlene, well, I was upset about that for them being out that late and around that area, but, you know, I was wondering what they were doing over... Out at that time of night, my husband told me to quit worrying about it because they were out all the time. He said that he sees them all the time, so he told me to quit worrying about it. So then when I talked to Dixie Hollingsworth, I got to the laundromat. She said that LG Hollingsworth had just left from there in some car, and I said, oh, that's funny. She said that it is, and she never did say why, and I thought it was funny, but I thought that he had just left from there, and they were coming down the street so then I talked to Dixie about it I told Dixie what I had seen and she said yeah that is kind of odd I said yeah it is I said Dixie these little children and later on they found out that they were dead I said Dixie that's kind of odd for them to be out that time of night and those little kids were dead don't you think and she said yes I do I said, let me ask you something. I said, since you know Damien better than me, do you think that he's capable of anything like this? And she said, yes, I do. She said, because he's in with the devil. That right there is a very important statement that Narlene's Hollingsworth had seen Damien and who she believed to be Domini Tear out on this service road 20 minutes to 10 o'clock at night. Again, it was very dark. Dominique had long, blonde hair. Jason Baldwin had long, blonde hair. She was very emphatic that she saw both of them covered in mud coming from the area of Robin Hood Hills. Norlene goes on to recount how the next day she took L.G. Hollingsworth to work. 
she noticed that the police were over by Robin Hood Hills but didn't know what was going on. And then later that afternoon, she, LG gets off work early and her kids are home and they start talking about the, ki the kids who have been murdered. And it's around this time that LG Hollingsworth shows up at her house in a yellow car. There's boxes inside of this car, although she has no idea what's in them. And LG informs the kids that they better not touch any of the boxes or he will have to hurt them. Narlene then talks with her sister, who heads over to the LG Hollingsworth house and according to Narlene her Deborah told her that they were all whispering and Narlene got a strange feeling about all of this. For switching tact and talking about the fact that everyone in her car had seen Damien and Domini over by the truck wash on the night of the murders. She also talks about how LG tried to get her to claim that she was his mother for informing her that if she starts talking about Damien, she may find herself in some serious trouble. On May 15th, police talked to an individual by the name of Robert Felix Birch, a.k.a. Snake, who had a pretty decent criminal record. And according to him... Birch had been at Skate World on May 14th, so this is the day prior to being interviewed. And Jason Baldwin had come over and started talking to him. And, quote, some detectives had said that he and Baldwin were the killers. To explain how he knew Baldwin from when he, Birch, lived in Highland Trailer Park. Birch also stated that other than... Jesse Miss Kelly and Charles Ashley Jr., he did not know any of Baldwin's friends. Birch gave information about individuals he had heard may have been involved in the killings. They also started to get more and more people coming in to state that they believed that Damien Eccles was possibly involved in these homicides. This is not a witch hunt at this point. This is people coming forward and giving information that they believe is pertinent to the police's investigation. You have to remember, this is the biggest thing to have happened in West Memphis, really, at this point, other than a old school burning down. And people want to help the police. They're not looking to you know, become famous for giving the information. They're generally worried about what has happened in their town as well as what has happened to these boys, and they're fearful of what may happen to other children. All of this is going on. The police are questioning everyone they can think of, including the parents. When they questioned Don Mark Byers, the police got a funny feeling from him, so they decided to confront him at the end of the interview and told him, quote, I may have information. This information suggests that you have something to do with that disappearance of the boys and ultimately of the murders. Okay, what is your response to that? To which Byers responded, my first response is, I, I can't fathom where you would get that, and it makes me so mad inside that I just kind of got to hold myself here in this chair. Now we're going to move on to talking about L.G. Hollingsworth, Jr., 
That is his name. That's not short for anything. It's just LG. LG was listed as a possible suspect in the murders fairly quickly after the bodies were discovered. LG was one of those individuals who was constantly in trouble with the law, and because of this, he ended up on the list of teenage suspects compiled by Lieutenant James Sudbury, this based off of information provided to him by Steve Jones and Jerry Driver, the juvenile court probation officers. LG was well known to Domini, who was his cousin, and it's been stated in some accounts that there may have been a romantic interest on his part, although I can neither confirm nor deny that. He was also acquainted with Eccles. Police learned on May 9th that, that LG had made statements that he knew what had happened to the boys. This was reported by Narlene Hollingsworth, who was both LG's former stepmother as well as her his aunt, as she had married LG's father, LG Sr., before divorcing him and marrying LG Sr.'s brother. LG was a dropout who worked at a grocery store as a batter at the time of the murders. So after receiving this tip, the police bring LG on the 10th, and as they're questioning him, they have Damien Eccles down the hall from them, and Damien supposedly named LG as a possible suspect in the triple homicide. Later that day, the police searched the Hollingsworth home, confiscated a few pairs of sneakers, as well as a knife in a sheath. They also received an anonymous tip stating, quote, who stated she had overheard that a Dominic and a Damien killed the three little boys, then an LG, last name unknown, took and laundered their clothes. Caller stated that Damon had body parts in a box from the children. The caller stated that she didn't want to give her name and that she had heard that LG's mother was going to lie about LG's whereabouts. When questioned about this box, LG stated that it contained papers for tests and information about Votech classes. The following day, May 11th, police got a tip from a teacher in Horn Lake, Mississippi, which is south of Memphis. The caller stated that an eight-year-old student had told her that she needed to talk about her cousin. Quote, the girl said that her cousin came home, that he is 19, that he had blood on his clothes and himself, that her cousin had something concealed in a box and put it in his car and told his family that if they ever went near the car, he would kill them. Her aunt said she would lie for him if he was involved and tell police he was with her at the time of the murders that the police had already talked to her cousin. Teacher advised that this was a good and usually quiet student and would be out of character for her to lie. The statement further said that LG was possibly going to Georgia and that he had been seen cleaning children's clothing at the nearby laundromat. Although, it should be noted that this student later claimed that none of these incidents had happened. Also of note concerning LG is the reason he went to the laundromat, which was ostensibly to get Dominique Tier's phone number, which is odd as 
He was very well known to Dominique Tier, and it's been stated numerous times that he spoke with her frequently. What we can say is that if he had any involvement in it, these crimes, L.G. Hollingsworth is no longer here to defend himself or to stand trial as he is now dead. We do know that police never officially ruled him out as a suspect or a possible accomplice in the crimes, although Miss Kelly never named him. He only gave the names of himself, Baldwin, and Eccles. Others named him, most notably two career criminals who gave statements while they were serving time in Arkansas prisons that L.G., Buddy Lucas, Terry Hobbs, and David Jacoby had killed the boys after the boys had discovered the four men having an orgy. L.G. Hollingsworth is one of those individuals who did name Damien Eccles as a possible suspect. He did this on the 10th as he was being interviewed and as Damien named LG as a suspect. On May 20th, police received a tip that Dixie Hollingsworth, nay Hubbard, had told an individual that two boys and a girl had come into the laundromat on May 5th between 10 and 10.30 p.m. to clean mud and blood off of their clothing. However, there's a discrepancy in this in that, according to Narlene Hollingsworth, she was picking Dixie up at 10 p.m. So for her to still be at the laundromat, between 10 and 10.30 makes little to no sense. Dixie Hollingsworth stated that she had been picked up by Narlene that night at 10 o'clock and that LG had come in early that evening to get Dominique's phone number. The rest of this reads like people in a small town with little to nothing to do, spreading rumors and talking amongst themselves to pass the time and make an exciting event even more exciting. So I'm not going to get into any further statements from these individuals as they don't contain any pertinent information to the case. One individual who came forward to attempt to dissuade police from looking into Baldwin and Eccles was Garrett Schwarting, who initially claimed that he had been over at the Baldwin household on May 5th until 9 or 9.30, playing Super Nintendo with Jason, and that he had gone over there a number of times that day in an effort to try and locate an Ozzy Osbourne t-shirt that Baldwin had that he wished to borrow before going to his friend's house to spend the night. However, his friend later contradicted this, stating that they had gone over to Baldwin's house at around 2 p.m. He stated that Baldwin was unable to find the shirt and that he, meaning Schwarting, had gone over there twice more over the course of about an hour or so. The problem with this is that no one else has ever claimed that Jason and his mother were at home at 2 p.m. on May 5th. There's reason for this. There are stories out there that Jason Baldwin had skipped school on May 5th 
However, records indicate that Jason Baldwin had not, in fact, skipped school that day, and the reason for this is fairly simple. Baldwin was on probation, and skipping school would have been a violation of that probation and would have resulted in charges for the various things he himself had gotten into being reinstated, meaning Jason may have, in fact, faced time in juvenile detention. So Jason Baldwin did not skip school on this day. Instead, he stayed until the end of school. Schwarting eventually changed his story, stating that on May 5th, he had not gone to Kevin's house because his mother had not allowed him out that evening, but he had done so the next night on the 6th. He is also one of many who put out stories to both the police and the media that Damien had been involved in a satanic cult. Dominique Tier. Damien Eccles' girlfriend, who was pregnant at the time with his son, was first interviewed by police in the front lawn of the Baldwin household. If you'll remember, this is when Jason's mother arrived home and refused to allow her son to speak with the police. According to Dominique, quote, On 5-5-93, she, Damien, and Jason Baldwin were at Jason's uncle's house somewhere around Dover Road mowing the lawn in the early afternoon, then stated that she got home around 6 p.m. and was there the rest of the night. Her mother verified this. She further stated Damien phoned his father to pick them up at the laundromat at Missouri in North Washington. They said they were picked up at 6 p.m. and Damien's father took Jason and Dominique home and Damien went home. On May 10th, Dominique was interviewed again. According to Brian Ridge, quote, Dominique claimed that on Wednesday, 5-5-93, she went with Damien, Jason, and Ken to Jason's uncle's house to watch as Jason mowed his yard, Dominique and Damien went to the laundromat where they called for Damien's mother to pick them up. Dominique stated that the time was about dark or just before it got dark. Dominique stated that she was dropped off at her house and Damien went home. Dominique stated that she called Damien and that he told her he was tired and was going to sleep. Dominique's mother stated that Dominique came in and when Time Tracks was on TV on Wednesday evening, Dominique stated that on Thursday, she and Damien had an argument and took out stress on each other. Dominique claimed that the conflict was to do with Jason Baldwin and his girlfriend. You can see that there are some discrepancies in Dominique's statements, namely who picked them up from the laundromat. There's also the fact that Dominique claimed she got home when it was dark out, and her mother stated that she got home when Time Tracks was starting. Time Tracks started at 7 p.m. that evening, and sunset occurred at 7.49 p.m. Dominique later changed her statement, saying that she had possibly gotten home earlier, around 5.30, for eventually dropping the phone call that she claimed to have had with Damien Eccles. She said after getting home, she took a nap, and then had an argument with Damien at roughly 10 p.m. over the fact that Jason Baldwin's girlfriend had called Damien Eccles. The fact that Dominique eventually drops any mention of these phone calls in every one of her subsequent interviews is important because 
much of the idea of Damien Eccles being innocent of the crimes for which he can, is convicted hinges on the fact that he claims that he was on the phone all night talking with a group of four girls. Domini is the only one to have ever mentioned that she had been on the telephone with Damien before 10 p.m. All of the others have stated that they either tried to call Damien and he was not home, or that they were not able to get in contact with him until after 9.30 or 10 o'clock which gave Damien, Jason, and Jesse Miss Kelly plenty of time to go out and commit these heinous murders. And to the best of my knowledge, although she no longer willingly gives interviews, Domini Tear has still stood by her story that the events of that night, as she told them in 1993, and has continued to tell them until this day, are in fact true. And I say this because you will get a lot of supporters stating that Dominique Tear and the other girls who were supposedly on the phone with Damien Eccles on that night recanted their testimony, just as they will say that Narlene Hollingsworth recanted her testimony. That is not true in any way, shape, or form. Vicki Hutchinson is the only one of import that has recanted her testimony, and again, we can't put any stock in the things that she says because she was bullied by members of the West Memphis Three support team and she also has a history of issues. The only thing that Domini has said concerning any of it is that she does not believe that Damien and the others are guilty which is what the supporters grasp onto and try and throw around as her having changed her story. All right, we are going to call it at this point. I know this episode was a hair shorter than previous ones, but I promise we have a lot more meat left on this bird to get into. Next week, we are going to be diving into all of the accounts that came out and reached police about Damien and his cohorts admitting to having committed these crimes, as well as Jesse Miss Kelly coming in for questioning and the individual who came forward and informed police that Jesse Miss Kelly had told him he had participated in the murders and had given him shoes that had blood on them. Until next time, The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasts. I hope that you're enjoying this series. Stay morbid. <laughs>